We're doing some studies in the book of Colossians, so if you'd like to turn, I hope you will, to Colossians chapter 1, page 983 in these Bibles that are in the pews. Andy and I, uh, Andy Wyatt and I are bringing some messages from Colossians. He, he preached the first one uh, three weeks ago. I preached last week, this week. He will bring another one from chapter 2 next week, and I'll preach the next three Sundays, uh, the remaining Sundays in October, and uh, we'll just pick some of the highlights from Colossians. Today we're looking at verses 9 to 14. I do want to remind you before I read it that this is the only letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church where he had never met the people. He had never been to this city. He's in prison at the time that he writes this, but if you remember, if you were here last week, there's a man named Epaphras who's mentioned at the beginning of the letter. And Epaphras had heard the gospel from the Apostle Paul in the city of Ephesus, which was about 100 miles from the city of Colossae. And Epaphras had taken that message back to the city of Colossae, had preached the gospel. Not only were people converted, but a church was established there and now time has passed, and Paul is writing to them. Timothy is with him, his protege, pastor, friend, and he's writing to them, telling them how much they pray for them. Uh, so last week we saw where he mentions he prays. Now we're going to see the content of that prayer, beginning in verse 9, if you'd like to follow along, hear God's word. And so from the day we heard, that is, they had heard about what God was doing among them. So from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we pray along with the psalmist now that you would open our eyes, that we would behold wonderful things from your law. In Christ's name, amen. Dr. Brian Chapel has been here to preach numerous times while he served as president of Covenant Seminary, which he no longer does. But some of us have read books that he's written, and he has an excellent book on prayer. And I remember reading in that book on prayer, one of the things he tells about is being out in Colorado with a group of people. He was speaking, I believe, at a, a Bible conference and he and a friend decided to hike Horn Peak. It's a mountain with a summit of about 14,000 feet. And so they started, they left a lot of people down at the base, and then he and his friend started their hike on a sunny morning in June. And they reached the peak uh, about four hours later at noon, and they stayed there for a while looking at the, uh, the beautiful view that they had from 14,000 feet up. And then they began their trek back down the mountain, but as they did, much to their chagrin, clouds and very thick fog began to envelop the mountain, and they had great difficulty seeing more than just a few feet in front of them. 
Now that was problematic because they could no longer see the landmarks uh, that they had followed to get up and they be quickly became lost. And so the minutes became hours. All afternoon they are lost and then it begins to rain. And then the rain begins to turn to snow. And they are dressed for summer so their lips turn blue and they are worried about hypothermia and they are shivering in their summer clothes because they are wet to the skin and they knew they had to get off that mountain, but every step they took in each direction only led to dead ends. Now it was getting to be dusk and it was quickly becoming dark and they prayed, they prayed intensely as they felt their way along. They began to plan how were they going to survive on that mountain with no supplies. Now in the camp miles below, there were a number of friends, and they were very aware that something was terribly wrong when they saw the dense fogs up on the mountain, dense clouds on the mountain, and they knew the two hikers were long overdue by several hours to return. And so at 5 p.m., and that's important, at 5 p.m., the group at the base organized a prayer meeting for them. And they began to pray, and they kept praying. After they prayed for 30 minutes, the clouds that had been only at the top of the mountain now enveloped the bottom as well, so they, were, they couldn't see in the camp below. And one longtime friend, a gal named Jan, a Christian friend of theirs who was a very strong Christian, she out loud prayed very boldly that the Lord would make time stand still so that they would have enough daylight to make it home off the mountain. She prayed that for Brian and his friend. Well, back up on the mountain at the same time, Brian and his friend decided that if they did not find a familiar landmark by 6 p.m., they would have to try and make some sort of shelter and try to survive the night. It was getting colder. They were soaked. He glanced at his watch, and it was right at 5.30. So they picked up the pace. They thought, we have 30 minutes to find a familiar landmark. They picked up the pace to descend. He glanced at his watch after they'd been going a long time, and it's still near 5.30. And so he was thinking, wow, it seems like a lot of time has passed, but we've still got more time. So they kept going and going and going, and each time he glanced at his watch, it said 5.30. They finally stumbled across a deeply eroded path, which Brian recognized as a closed forest service trail. And they knew, though, that that path would take them to the base, so they followed it, knowing they could get down, and they, they finally did several hours later. As they got into the camp, Brian glanced at his watch, and it still said 5.30. They had planned to stop at 6 p.m. It was long after that now. Well, one of the friends at the camp, when they told him they were so happy to see them, told him about praying for them, he said, in fact, Jan even prayed for time to stand still so that you could get down. And Brian said, what time did she make that prayer? Oh, he said at 5.30. And Brian showed his watch, went over to Jan, showed her how his watch had stopped at 5.30. And while they are talking, he goes like this. And even though he had come down the mountain, walked up, the second hand started, and it began to run again. Years later, when the watch finally died, he mailed it to her with a thank you note for her bold intercessory prayer. Bold intercessory prayer. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. Prayer is hard work. Intercessory prayer is real hard work when we don't have a vested interest 
so to speak. We're praying for other people. Intercessory prayer is when you intercede, when you pray for God to do something in someone else's life, someone you may know, someone you may not know. In this case, Paul and Timothy did not know them personally, but yet they are praying, as he says, continually for them. Prayer is hard work. Individual prayer, prayer in a family, prayer in a small group, prayer gatherings here at the church, and there's no way to make it any other, anything other than hard work. It, it just is. It seems as though our Christian brothers and sisters in the past had a, had a better handle on this than we do. It's because so many of the greatest books on prayer are not modern. They were written two to three hundred years ago by people who were very, very devoted to prayer and came up with methods of prayer and guides for prayer and so forth. Perhaps we doubt the power of intercession. Maybe we think, what difference will it make? How will I know if God answers or not? Lord, bless Joe over there on the mission field. I mean, I might as well just speak the words into the air if that's, if that's my, the, the extent of my faith. We need these words from the Apostle Paul to understand. Look at verse 9. We're just going to kind of walk through the passage, verses 9 and 14. I'll mention some of the highlights. He says, From the day we heard of it, that they had heard about God's work among them, we've not ceased to pray for you. Why does he pray for them? He says, for this reason. The reason was we, we saw last week. The reasons were their faith and hope and love. For whom does he pray? The Colossian believers. How often does he pray? He says in verse 9, unceasingly. Obviously not every waking moment, but often, perhaps through the day. Is intercessory prayer part of your day, your normal day? Do you pray for others? Do you pray for them often? If, if so, for whom do you pray? Each of us certainly could find a few moments, maybe even a few minutes each day to intercede on behalf of others, beyond just our circle of the close family or friends, but beyond that. Don't doubt that God has brought you here this day at this time so that you leave here today more committed to interceding on behalf of others. Let's look at what he prayed for, for them. First in verse 9, he says he prays for knowledge, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Filled with the knowledge of God's will. I don't know if you have a prayer list. I hope you do. Of people and things, you know, requests that you keep a record of. But if so, probably at the top of the list is not the request to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Maybe it's health concerns, maybe it's searching for a job, maybe it's some material item, maybe it's some relationship issue. All of those seem to be more important and certainly more, um, more pressing than praying that, Lord, help this person to be filled with the knowledge of your will. The word for knowledge here, though, is chosen very carefully by the Apostle Paul. The false teachers there were, we refer back to them as Gnostics. It's a word that means to know. Uh, gnosis means to know. And so they claim to have a higher, more important, more secretive, mysterious knowledge that if you were to know God, you had to have their secret knowledge, among other things. Uh, they claim to have uh, in a way that others didn't have this knowledge. So Paul mentions that word specifically to say, I pray that you have the knowledge of God's will. That's what's most important, not what the false teachers say. 
And he mentions the knowledge and spiritual wisdom and understanding. Um, the word wisdom, uh, this is really, I don't have a good way to explain this, but it's, it's, it's about the most important point in this whole sermon. The word wisdom is the same word here that's used to describe a man in Exodus named Bezalel. Now, Bezalel was a craftsman. And when the tabernacle, if you don't have much Old Testament background, that's fine, but it was a tent. And it was a tent that had this curtain that went around it. And God told Moses and the Israelites as they wandered in the wilderness that that is where he would meet with them. And they offered sacrifices there, and the priests would go there. And it was a very uh, elaborate, uh, very specifically constructed tent and, and court that they moved from place to place, called the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. Well, the main craftsman that put that together was named Bezalel. And in Exodus 31, here is how God describes him. Now, you talk about being multi-talented. God says, I have filled him, speaking of Bezalel, with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence and knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze. Here was this craftsman, this guy who probably never heard his name till now or, or a strong possibility of that. And that is the word when it says he's been filled with all knowledge. He knew how to make things work. He knew how to take these precious metals and so forth and craft them so that they function. And so we have these words, wisdom and understanding and discernment and knowledge, and they are not all the same things. You can have great knowledge and very little wisdom. You can have great knowledge and very little discernment. A surgeon can be trained to know how to handle a scalpel, but if they don't have discernment and wisdom, they can use that to kill someone intentionally. So you may have the knowledge without the wisdom and discernment. It's like bricks and mortar and a trowel. It's like building a wall, these things. When I, the neighborhood I grew up in, in Alabama, the houses were all built about the same time, which means the families were all about the same ages that bought into those, which means our neighborhood was filled with other boys my own age or within a few years. Down the street was Barry Pope and his younger brother Randy got in ferocious fights in the bathroom in the junior high school where we went. There were the Bone brothers, Roanne and Mary Bone and their four sons, Buddy Bone, uh, John Bone, Andy Bone, Tommy Bone. <laughs> and uh, then there was, uh, there was uh, Mike Coker across the street. There was, there was Bill Thompson across another. There were all these guys. We had enough boys where we could play football in a front yard with 11 on each team and have kickoffs, okay? That gives you an idea how many kids lived in the neighborhood uh, and freedom to roam about at that time in history. Now everybody's locked indoors, right? But we could actually walk outside and walk around. So one day down at the Bones house, and that's where I spent most of my time because, why do you think? They had a trampoline. (laughs) But their dad had hired this brick mason to build a brick wall around the the brick patio and he had completed part of the wall and just stopped and he had left all his materials there and his tools there so Andy and I said let's finish the wall 
we'll help this guy out. So we had watched, and we got the bricks, and yeah, you take the trowel, and you put the mortar, and you know, (laughs) that was the fun part. It was more fun putting that on and scooping it off, and so we tried to mimic what he had done, which was a brick here, and then a brick there, and a brick there. It wasn't solid, that you could see through it. It was supposed to be like that. So we finished out about six or eight feet of that wall that went up about four feet. It looked terrible. I mean, there was mortar dripping everywhere. It was just a mess. And so the next day I came back after the mortar had dried and I put my hand on top of the wall and the whole thing just moved over. You know, there was no stability to it at all. We had the tools. We had the bricks, which is like the knowledge. We had the mortar, but we didn't know how to use it. That's like wisdom. We had all that. But Paul prays that they'd have these things and know how to use them, that they would be knowledgeable, wise, discerning, and understanding. Never make the assumption that knowledge and wisdom are the same thing. They aren't. Uh, Of course, Proverbs 1-7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. If knowledge was the answer to all social ills, where would the safest, most crime-free place on the planet be? A college campus. Need I say more? It's not that way. You better lock your door. You better, you know, something's going to be stolen and, and uh, you know, things like that. So you can have great knowledge and, and not much wisdom. I'm not just talking about students. I'm talking about those who teach. They don't necessarily go together, knowledge and wisdom. But God has given us the greatest resource for this, and that is the Holy Spirit. In 1 John 1, uh, chapter 2, verse 20, it says, You have been anointed by the Holy One. So the same Holy Spirit who indwelt Jesus, who anointed Jesus, anoints us as his followers, as Christ followers. And it said that he would guide us into all truth. So God takes his word through the Holy Spirit. We are given wisdom and understanding, and that's what Paul was praying for them. I must move on, and I'll do so quickly. Look at verse 10. He goes on, and he prays also that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to live a life worthy of the Lord. Now we grimace when we hear that because immediately it sounds like walk worthy, be worthy of the Lord. None of us are worthy. Is this like we can earn his favor? Is this that I can do certain things and he obligates himself because of my performance? No, that's not it at all. Always compare scripture with scripture. Paul uses this phrase, Philippians 1, Ephesians 4, 1 Thessalonians 2. So rather than getting the wrong idea, that somehow or another we merit eternal life by living a worthy life, Uh, what Paul is saying is that we should live in such a way that the worth of God is magnified. It's worthy in that someone sees it and and it reflects the glory of God. What I mean by that is the focus is not that we are worthy by virtue of how we live, but that we should walk in a way that's worthy and reflects or displays how much he is worthy of such obedience on our part. So it could be that you see a person suffering and there's great patience there, and you say, how is that? You say, because I I serve a patient God, and he's given me patience. So how can you forgive that person after what she said about you or what, what he did to you? Well, because I serve a forgiving God, and by his power I'm able to forgive. It's not from me. Uh, Don't thank me. It's from him. How can you have such endurance amidst such hardship? You say, because God is a faithful, enduring God. That's how. 
I've told you this story before uh, years ago, but for those that don't know, we have an 18-year-old son who was born with multiple birth defects. Many of you have never met him. He's in, I assume he's in the nursery, not walking around, but in the nursery right now. And when he was born, the, the immediate problem was a bilateral cleft lip and palate. So if you've seen, I've never paid attention to these things. It's rather shocking when you first see it, especially bilateral, so, which means it's, the lip is, in a sense, missing the middle part. It's just wide open. And so we were told, at least 18 years ago, I'm sure medical science has changed a lot by now and things may be totally different, but they said this, this boy is going to need eight surgeries over 18 years just for this one issue, bilateral cleft lip and palate, not to mention other problems he had. So at less than one week of age, he's at University of Alabama in Birmingham. He'd been transferred over there from the medical center. And a woman we'd never met Came, was waiting on us at the hospital. She had heard through a common friend that used to live here, and they were members of Browood Presbyterian Church. She had heard about what we were dealing with. So she's there, and she basically planted herself in the room where we were for two days. And her whole purpose was to convince us that we needed to see a certain doctor named Dr. Millard who lived in Miami and practiced. She said, he is the best surgeon to close that lip. That is who you need to see. Because if you don't, they may make a mess of things. Someone else may mess it up. Which she had experienced with her own daughter. That's why she was so passionate about that. So we began to learn about, okay, since that's the only part of a surgery like that that people see, the rest is in you know, the roof of the mouth and sinuses and teeth and all these other things. But that's the visible part. That's the first surgery. So you want that one to look, to, to, to be as normal as possible. So we would look at pictures on, on a bulletin board there where there were infants and uh, babies, you know, one, two, three years old. They had had their lips closed. Uh, they had had that surgery, and Barbara and I got to where we could look and say, man, that, you can hardly tell that person had that. Ooh, this one doesn't look so good. You know, this one, you could... You, you could train your eyes to where you could begin, begin to see what was well done and what was not. Now, here's my point. We have this surgeon in Atlanta at the Atlanta facial, uh, Craniofacial Clinic. He's in California now, but he was an artist, a true artist, and he, he's the one that did that surgery at six months old. And he did a great job. And when people would see it, they would, would they say, wow, look at the great job you and Barbara did. No. Would they say, Stephen ought to be proud of himself for what he did? No. What would they say? Who was the surgeon? Who was the surgeon? Who was the surgeon who brought this result? That was always the question. It was a, we would see a child, wow, that looks great. Who was the surgeon who did this? Who was the man or woman who was able to close this lip and make it look right? My point is, and I'm belaboring it, so that when someone sees patience or endurance or the fruit of the Spirit, it's not that they're going to come up to you and say, why are you that way? But to say that God, I know that person. I know that person's a Christ follower. God is the one who's, who's enabled that person to uh, apologize for something or to endure that. That's what he means to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord who's called you. So he prays that for them. And then in verse 12, he gives thanks that God has qualified them to share in the inheritance in the saints in light. 
Um, not disqualified, he's qualified. You ever, if you've ever not qualified, maybe for a job, or you, you applied for a school, and they said, sorry, you're not, you're not qualified, or you're not qualified for this job because you don't have this degree or this background or five years of experience in a related field. God qualifies us to this inheritance, and it's not an inheritance that will be fought over. It's not an inheritance that will be litigated. I, uh, I was wondering, and I looked up the other day online, uh, whatever happened to Howard Hughes's will? Now, I know about three-fourths of you don't even know who I'm talking about because of your age. But back, uh, he died 37 years ago. And he was the Bill Gates, well, he was an invisible Bill Gates. You know, it was a joke that nobody saw him after a certain time. He was a, a recluse and so forth. But he, he owned TWA Airlines and, he, and all these other things and medical centers and so forth. So when he died, it was very problematic because there was no will. There was no immediate family. Uh, there was nothing in writing as to where these, at that time, hundreds of millions, by these standards, billions of dollars were to go. And so after 34 years of litigation, I mean, you had women come forward claiming to be former wives. You had people saying they were children, his children. I mean, you had, you had Melvin Dumar. Y'all remember that name by any chance? Anybody remember that name? Remember him? Thank you. The first service they all just stared at. Yeah. Melvin Dumar worked at a gas station out in Utah, and he claimed to have picked up this man hitchhiking one night, and it was Howard Hughes, and Howard Hughes wrote him a three-page will that he was to inherit one-sixteenth of his estate when he died. So Melvin Dumar became quite a top. Trust me, I mean, that's ancient history now. So, but Anyway, 34 years of litigation to settle his estate and pass on any inheritance to individuals and institutions. There'll be no litigation with this inheritance. God says it's ours because he's qualified us to share in it. And he prays and he gives thanks to God for the divine transfer, lastly, in, um, in the last two verses. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. The Bible says there are two spiritual realms. There are two spiritual kingdoms. There's a kingdom of darkness. There's a kingdom of light. There's a kingdom under the authority and power of Satan. There's the kingdom under the power of God. The irony that all people are in one or the other is that typically those in the kingdom of darkness feel they are not. And they think those that are in light are in darkness. Like many of us felt before we were believers. Uh, and they're blind to the fact that they're powerless to free themselves from that. Sam Storms, in his devotional writings about this passage, said, If you ever felt you needed a good reason to share the gospel with an unsaved neighbor or a co-worker in the office, this is it. Don't be misled by what appears to be worldly success. Burgeoning careers, civil behavior, the respect of their peers, backyard barbecues, children who score high on the ACT notwithstanding, they are in the power of the evil one energized by the domain of darkness. There is only one hope for them or us. It is the forgiveness of sins that is found only in Jesus Christ. 
And in verse 13, he talks about being transferred from one kingdom to the other. Archaeology helps us to understand. It does not mean transfer like when you transfer some money from one bank account to another. It doesn't mean transfer like when you say, I'm, I've got a job here, but I'm being transferred to the office in Augusta or Atlanta. It's not talking about that. It is a term that historically was used when entire nations were uprooted and moved, exiled. When the Babylonians would defeat a nation, they would exile them. They would take them back to serve as slaves in Babylon. When the Assyrians conquered nations, they scattered them to the four ends of the earth so that they could not regroup and be a threat. So they would take them and move them to the north, south, east, and west so they could not regroup. Paul is using the same term that is literally to uproot a nation and move it to another to uproot a people out of one kingdom and transfer the entire group to another. So what Paul says to the Colossians is that God has taken us who are in darkness and he has come in. We haven't transferred ourselves. He has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, from the domain of Satan to the domain of Jesus Christ in his life. Where are you, Charlie? Now's the time for the amen. That's what he's done. I mean, if you're a Baptist, we'd say that. He's transferred us in Christ from one to the other. In Jesus, and he says, we have redemption, present tense. It's not in the future. Maybe we might have it. We'll have it after so much time. No, we have it now. It isn't a, just a future hope. It's something that will happen a certain day in the future. It is ours now. It is an existing, ever-present, life-changing reality at the present moment. I close with his last thought. Back to where we started, intercessory prayer for others. And you may say, I want to pray for others. I want to follow the example of the Apostle Paul, and I want to pray. We're surrounded by needs. Well, what should I do? I would say take verses 9 to 14 and use those as your prayer. Just personalize those. If you're looking at the verse, you would say, Lord, I pray today, I pray that this family, that this Man, I know that he'd be filled with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that he may walk in a manner worthy of you, fully pleasing to you, that he'd bear fruit in every good work. May you strengthen him with all power according to your glorious might. Give him that all endurance and patience with joy. Just take, take the prayer we have modeled here and use it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you've not left us here without resources, that you've transferred us from one kingdom, the kingdom of death, really, to the kingdom of light and life. But you've also, by your Spirit, given us the resources of power and endurance and wisdom and understanding and discernment. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you look at the end of the order of service, you see a benediction in the doxology. Um, if you're not familiar with benedictions, the, the word... The word is first referred to in the book of Numbers. There was a priest, the head priest was named Aaron. And God told Aaron after the people had assembled as they were to depart, Aaron was to raise his hands and pronounce a, a blessing on the people. And that's called the Aaronic benediction, named after Aaron. So the benediction really is a blessing. Some, some of you have been taught that it's a prayer, and so I notice when I say receive the benediction, you bow your heads. That's fine. Some of you have been taught 
you, that the pastor pronounces gives the benediction, gives the blessing on behalf of the Lord, and you've been taught to open your hands to receive the benediction. Don't you, you feel the freedom to do whatever because it looks confusing sometimes. Let me invite you to stand and receive now the benediction. May grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.